Master Bowman podcast. If you're obsessed with the strategies, gear, and stories that will make you a better backcountry bow hunter, you're in the right place. We're independent, unsponsored, and unbiased, so we can cut the fluff and give you detailed advice on what really works and what doesn't. Today's episode is part of the off-season opportunity series. Josh and I are going to talk about hunting in Hawaii and how you could potentially combine a vacation with your family with one heck of a hunting trip. Hey, Josh. What's up, Baxter? Oh, man, we get to talk about a fun one today. I think everybody's locked inside and kind of getting depressed, but <laughs> we talk about hunting Hawaii, you know, think about blue waters, beautiful sunsets. <laughs> yeah, this is one I'm really excited about because there might be a chance I can go now that I work remote. Um, but also, it's interesting to me because the first time I heard about it, I was like, I would have never put two and two together that like mm-hmm. there's good hunting in Hawaii. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I mean, I'm far from like the expert, but of course, like all things I've done way too much research and we've hunted there twice now, um, and found a week each and a weekend. Um, and it is pretty incredible. Uh, and we are on, I think one of the policies of this podcast is not hot spotting, So I'm never going to say exactly this location or that outfitter or that thing, unless it's a paid hunt or something. But, uh, so we won't go into those specifics. We can give guys like a really good general overview of the opportunities and what it looks like. Yeah, it sounds good. Wait, so you did both your Hawaii trips were full DIY. Yep, total full DIY. I mean, that's that's pretty much the style I, I do. Don't get me wrong. If I had the money to do guided, I'd probably do that and remove some of the hassle. But uh, yeah, fully DIY, fully over the counter, all the, the buzzwords, right? Just straight yeah. up bow hunting. So how'd you hear about hunting in Hawaii and what made you interested in going? Man, I don't even remember the first time I heard about it. Um, you know, I think it's it's a great opportunity because the best hunting happens in the off season, right? And I've always kind of been thinking about hunting as a thing where I want to keep growing my skills. And it's pretty tough to only go for like a few weeks a year, a month a year and stay motivated. So um, I'd actually been in New Zealand and we'll cover that on another podcast uh, and I was just looking around going, I think I was just trying to figure out other places we could go during that time frame. Uh, in specific, we hunted Axis deer. There's a lot of other opportunities on the island. But uh, yeah, we've been in Feb and March, April, kind of the months when it's cold and nasty other places. You get to take your little Hawaii vacation and, and go hunt. So I think we were just looking for a good filler. And it's pretty easy to talk the lady into going and hunting in a t-shirt. You know, it's a <laughs> nice place to go. <laughs> yeah. So both times you went with Margaret, right? Yep. Yeah. We've gone. And I think we do it again as a family deal. It's pretty mellow. It's pretty easy. And, uh, you don't, you know, there's definitely like all hunting, there's a lot of fitness and work there, but I think the hunting there isn't as much about like how far in, how deep you can get. It's about technique and skill. And so what's nice is you could drive the car to the, you know, 15 minutes from the place, at least where we were hunting and and go for it. Wow. That's crazy. Is it hard to find access to public land there? Yeah. And that's probably a good spot to kind of start and delve into it. I mean, there's a ton of different hunting opportunities there and they, the, the verdict is they really vary by the Island. Uh, so there's only certain species on certain islands. Um, what Hawaii is famous for, for big game hunting is really axis deer, goats, and pigs. You are the three things guys do. Well, they still, uh, they have a lot of other opportunities, tons of upland bird hunting, believe it or not. Um, trucker, quail, Franklin, some other ones that you would never see in the States, really cool stuff. Uh, so they've, that's kind of the big three and it depends on the Island you go to. Um, and again, I don't really want a hot spot, but some of them are known for over the, uh, over the counter public land, you know, pigs and goats. Some have some access deer. Generally speaking, it's a little harder to find places that are public with access deer, um, or at least, you know, private that you can get onto cheap. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're uh, they're everywhere on the islands, but that's that's kind of the premier one everyone goes for. So okay, and why why does everyone go for axes? Is the meat flavor the the hunting style? Probably all the above. I mean, it's the closest thing to the the deer and the elk. Most guys target over here anyway, um, and they're amazing creatures. Um, I go on for hours about them, I and they're super. They're called chital. They're originally from India, uh, and they were brought over here. And they their natural predator is the tiger. So they're incredibly twitchy, incredibly, incredibly twitchy. Like, I think we've talked about this example before, but there's been one or two shots where I literally had a perfect, you know, perfect heart shot on one at I think it was 30 and 60 yards. Uh, one was 67, which is stretching it. But by the time between when I released the arrow and when the arrow got there, the 
the uh, access to your move like two or three body lengths <laughs> crazy way so we'll have to talk techniques for hunting them but they're very very challenging they're tiny they're very small right like you get 20 30 pounds of meat off of one they're 60 pounds something like that they're tiny like a big dog <laughs> that's insane yeah so they're very challenging um so that's probably why they're most popular uh and you know they got horns right everybody wants horns for some reason Right. Um, and then what about like, if you could paint a picture for what the environment is like that they're in. And I mean, you mentioned hunting in a t-shirt, but yeah, what's that whole experience look like? Yeah. And I think that's, I mean, if we're summoned today up in one thing, the, the coolest deal about it is it's a great opportunity for guys to combine this with a family trip, right? Cause it's pretty hard to get hunting time. And a lot of guys are gonna say, well, I got my one week a year, but if you could go with your family, you know, for a week, you'd be pretty easy to sneak out for a day or two, depending on where you are or a morning or an evening, you know, something like that, um, which is the best time to hunt them like you know, most other animals. Uh, and so it depends again on the Island, but generally speaking, the axis deer are going to be in pretty lush green stuff. Um, they'll be in somewhat ruggedy kind of lava fields. Like that was one of the surprises for both of us is you do have to wear like decent footwear because the lava is pretty sharp, pretty steep in some places. It's pretty rugged. Um, you actually don't want, it's a weird balance of gear because it's like chucker hunting, I think, where you actually, if you have too stiff of a boot chucker hunting, it's not like elk hunting. It doesn't dig into the soft side of the mountain. Mm-hmm. Kind of got that rough, jagged rocks. You kind of want something that's stiff enough. It supports you, but not too stiff that it doesn't conform to the the rocks. But I digress anyway. Um, yeah, but they're in, I mean, it's beautiful, right? You're kind of near the ocean. You're in these mountains that you can see uh, stuff. Some of the axis deer tend to be down in the farmland too. They'll come, they're viewed as pests there. Uh, they definitely don't have any natural predators. Uh, so it just depends on which part of the island you're in. But generally speaking, it's pretty green. It's pretty lush. Um, and it's it's a really cool area. So some parts are like really rocky and other parts are pretty green and lush, mm-hmm. like combination of both. Totally. Yeah. And you've, uh, there's places you'll hunt and it looks like Africa. It's like, you know, sparse trees with barely any grass on the ground. There's other places it looks like a jungle. You'll hunt them. So it's kind of anything in in between. So very different, super different tactics and ways of going about hunting, which we can get into in a minute. But, um, you know, tactically for guys for like the, what, third or fifth time now, I'm not going to give you spots, but really the information's on the internet. It's like anything, you know, I don't want to take the fun away from you. You like go do some research, go look it up, go talk to guys that have been there. Um, there are places you can go DIY. It's not super expensive. That's um, you know Hawaii is not easy to get to. This is generally a best thing for someone on the West Coast because it is a long, expensive flight from somewhere, say, east of like Denver or New Orleans or something like that. Mm-hmm. But uh, once you're there, really the most expensive stuff about hunting Hawaii is the lodging and the transportation. Like that's the that's the expensive stuff. It's not really the the hunting or the tags if uh, you get onto land that you don't have to pay too much to access. Gotcha. Um, and then, so I guess, well, first of all, I just want to, I have so many thoughts going on, but one, as I want to mention, you showed me some pictures, I think, yeah. from Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Is it always that beautiful? Like, do you That's always have an ocean view, like almost like 180 degrees all around you? Yeah. I mean, if it was there, I was hunting the island I was on. Yeah, pretty much. It's, um, I mean, I think hunting, it's one of the most unique experiences because for me, hunting has always been, you know, an intense thing, right? You've got, you've got tons of gear, you've got layers, you've got water filters, you've got, I mean, there you've got, you know, a mani pack or a fanny pack, I should say. You've got like a little tiny pit pack with a water bottle and some snacks and you're wearing like your, your Sitka base layers. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. like, dang. And by the way, subalpine is perfect for that environment. It's kind of funny. Oh, interesting. But, um, it's or Kuyu or anything that's got a green in it, but it's, it's super mellow. I mean, it's unbelievably mellow. You just carry your bow and that little tiny thing and just walk around because it's 70, 80, 85 degrees. Your, your sun is probably your biggest problem, just sunscreen and that sort of thing. So it's, yeah, it's beautiful, man. It's some of the most amazing photos I've ever taken hunting are there. And it's just, um, I think even if you don't tag out and that's a real, real possibility for axis deer they're very difficult that's one of the things i love about it right i don't want to just go have a pushover um sort of deal but they're they're real fun to hunt you might not get one but it is such a cool experience it's not to be missed yeah i'd love to hear some i know you've told me a bunch of the stories but maybe for our audience um maybe some of the stories and lessons from your first trip and uh actually if you can start with what was surprising to you when you got there 
Yeah, I mean, I think what was was most surprising to us was the uh, the level of tactics you got to play with the Axis deer. I mean, they're so there's no way to really call them or move them in like an elk or something like that. So it's almost all the spot and stock, which is generally my my forte or the thing I'm pretty good at. Um, and it was is next level stuff. So for example, this one area we hunted was um, somewhat near like the trash dump. Ironically, like it's an area nobody wants to land. Um, and so we parked the car on the, uh, the side of the road and walked out. And the way this works is it's, you know, there's mountains there and there's, but there's kind of these draws, right? There's these ravines. It's a little like Arizona or something where you've got these steep little gorges and a lot of the axis deer, you know, we learn is they will, they'll stay down in the gorge or kind of go around the corner or something to, to spend the majority of the day. Cause it's pretty far out there. It's safe, but they'll come up these gorges and go out onto the plateaus at night and in morning to get, uh, you know, a lot of the green life that's kind of up there. And so, you know, pretty quickly we tried to figure out, Hey, this is where they're going to go. We jumped a few of them as we were walking in, you were creeping super quiet. And then, you know, you bust and you hear one, you know, ripping through the brush. And so, you know, our new strategy was, Hey, let's try to cut them off as they're moving up and down these canyons. Cause we can get to the edge and then sneak and move on over. So one of the first shot opportunities where I, where I got one was I'm uh, going over the edge of this canyon and what we'd noticed is we'd seen them kind of moving down the bottom further up and it was about 200 yards to the bottom of the canyon and to paint a picture it's a lot like you know a lot like you'd see rim rock in the west tons of big boulders big chunks and then you know this thick vegetation along the bottom with a lot of tree scrub uh, and i snuck in margaret saw them and kind of pointed them out and we uh, we kind of started sneaking down i got to within 50 yards of the bottom and uh and they shoot, so they shoot both males and females, everything, because they're, they're invasive, right? There's so many of them, they want to get rid of them. And so we were, we were meat hunting. And so the first one that walked down the path was a, um, a doe. And so I drew back um, on the doe. You know, this is this is probably day two or three. We'd had a bunch of ones we, we busted and didn't have good odds. Um, and she came to 60, or no, 40. This one was like 45. And uh, I drew her back, perfect shot. She stopped, stuck her head in the grass, started started chewing and I let the arrow fly. And within that 10 seconds, she was gone. Or sorry, 10th of a second, she was gone. <laughs> I mean, just completely gone. And wow. uh, you guys probably will think I'm exaggerating or I'm saying whatever it is, but Margaret was behind me filming. You know, took a photo of it and she, this exact spot where her, her vitals were, it was right where the arrow was buried. <laughs> it was just mind-blowing to hear their, her like just completely jump that string um and so that was kind of our first true experience with axis deer and we learned a few things from that one is that you kind of do have to pattern them a little bit you have to know where they're at you know, hunting from a tree stri- tree stand or a spot isn't a bad way to do it but if you're doing spotter stock you kind of have to know what the the local ones are doing um, or you have to be able to get into the areas they loaf during the day we'll, we'll get to that later um, and the other is the best time to hunt axis deer by far is in the wind. Uh, mm-hmm. So you want at least like 10, 15 miles an hour of wind, which is normally really tough for bow hunting. Um, but it's it's just necessary for the noise because they're so jumpy. Yeah, so, you said that that doe was munching on grass. So completely unaware. Completely and utterly unaware, 45 yards and jumped. This <laughs> I mean, it's incredible. Uh, and I, wow. I don't have a very loud bow. I mean, it's it's relative. It's kind of middle middle low. I would say. Mm-hmm. Uh, so pretty impressive. So yeah, if we're talking gear tips and techniques for guys, you know, silence is everything on that one. You know, if I was truly a rich man <laughs> and was hunting Hawaii two or three weeks every year or something like that, um, or even a week a year, you know, consistently, I would probably have a specific bow for that. Wow. Yeah. Cause it's, it's that level of, if I'm doing the DIY thing, right. Where they're super twitchy and hunted year round. Right. That's the other thing. A lot of these islands, by the way, you can hunt year round. There's no seasons um, on the some of the private lands, public lands. There's draws uh, that you put in for. There are seasons. There's other stuff you should look up. But uh, mm-hmm. private lands, a lot of them are year round. Got it. And year round. That's insane. So that animal never is is never switched off. It's just. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's always on. And it's not, it's not because of that. They're like, it's ingrained in them too. I mean, centuries and centuries of tigers hunting them as their primary predator. They're used to being extremely twitchy. Yeah. And so you also mentioned earlier, there's no predators there on Hawaii uh, for them at all. I, I guess besides humans. 
yeah, there's nothing there that will that will kill them other than humans. So they're uh, they they roam free. There's plenty of them. I mean, there's a lot of them. It's a cool place because it's target rich environment, right? <laughs> you will see this island I was on, and this little guys that have been there will know that you know they call this one spot the Serengeti, and you look out there, and there's a few thousand of them. Wow, uh, it's really funny too. The thing about going to Hawaii and New Zealand is you realize how fake a lot of these hunting shows are. Even big names, guys that. Now, I'm not going to throw anyone under the bus. I'm not. Why would I do that? Um, but there's big, reputable guys that are known for DIY stuff that that when you look at all their videos, it's really clear they're on that totally private, super expensive section of the Serengeti um, hunting those ones, you know, two or 3,000 of them, right? I mean, I'm talking the Dang. biggest names in bow hunting and the ones that you see every day and are sponsored by major bow companies and have Instagram accounts. Um, <laughs> and they all post... You know, all this stuff, DIY, da, 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 no, no, not at all. Um, wow. But the, yeah, it's, you see tons of them. There's lots of them out. It's just really hard to get close to them. You know, I was, what's so interesting about, I guess, the draw for me to go to Hawaii, like why I'm interested in it. Uh, one, because I work remote now and the opportunity might be there for me to just work there and then like hunt the weekends. Mm-hmm. But two is because it seems like, it seems like if you wanted to design a place to just, do hardcore like bow hunting training Mm -hmm. it seems like there's no better place than that because it's a year-round season and the animal is incredibly hard to hunt but there's a ton of them Mm -hmm. so you'll probably get to stock them all the time fail a lot but get lots of opportunities so maybe like an elk hunting maybe you'll get one shot opportunity in your week but who knows out there in access maybe you can have three in a day i mean it, it seems like you condense your training uh, yeah, well, you'll get, and this is why it's one of my favorite types of hunting. I absolutely loved it. And that's the reason is that, you know, we didn't get one the first time the whole week, you know, I actually killed one. We didn't find, which is really, really a bummer. Um, I hate that, but, uh, we found it the next day and it was, you know, Hawaii temps, it was gone. Um, but, uh, the thing about, about that is you get, you know, two to five stocks or opportunities every day, at least right? Like you're getting numbers, you know, five, five times the amount of elk encounters I get normally, you know, if I'm, I get really lucky and I usually get one to two a day, but with those guys, you're getting tons. And so, yeah, it's a low hit rate, but you're getting that practice and it's engaging and you're always interested in it. So it's amazing. And it's very different styles too. On this, this place we were, there was that kind of area that we would hunt that was very spot and stocky and you kind of had to know their patterns. And then one of the other areas we hunted was all these low rolling kind of hills up on the plateau. Mm. And um, that was kind of glassing. It was more mule deer. It was glassing and watching them. And what we'd do is uh, you'd glass some up and you'd see them and you'd kind of see where they're going and then you'd run or you drive around the back or whatever it was. Uh, and we actually had Margaret call me on the cell phone and she's kind of talking me in, you know, they're over here. Okay. You're coming over the top of the hill, this spot, right? Um, wow. And I actually, you know, there was a hillside and we saw some on it and she drove the car around the back and came over the top and I coached her in to where one came around a bush uh, 12 yards from her. Whoa. Yeah. And she just hadn't drawn, hadn't, you know, she's just a new bar, new bow hunter, right? Just hadn't drawn, hadn't really got used to it and, um, shot like drew and shot into the ground at its feet. Like, you know, it did like a backflip and like ran the other way. <laughs> but wow. I mean, just amazing, amazing stuff where you're, you're like mule deer hunting, you see one bedded or you see them sitting there and you're sneaking in on your hands and your feet. And uh, it's a really different styles. It's very cool. Yeah. I'd love to dig into the the tactics a little bit. I guess yeah. first with the spotting part and then maybe dive into stalking after. Are they hard to spot? Generally speaking, no, because they're pretty, they're like a reddish with white dots. Um, oh, okay. So they're, they're generally easier to see. A lot of the rock there can be red, so it can, that can be hard. Um, but you'll, you know, you can see them, right? They're generally going to be out morning and evening, like most animals, but you'll see them all day. Yeah, they're around. Um, if, it's, if it's not windy, they're kind of, uh, they're just kind of sitting down. If that's another reason it's people like the wind is when it's windy, they get up and they're everywhere. They move around. So Whoa. look for wind. Like if I'm in Hawaii and I'm giving guys one tactic for axis steer, it's look at your week and plan around the wind. Whoa. Uh, nothing else. I mean, yes, for stocking in like elk, you need, need to be downwind and all that stuff really important. But I mean, just windy is good for hunting. 
Interesting. Uh, so something to remember. So that's probably tactic number one, right? Like set up the macro because mm-hmm. <laughs> well, that's going to help you win no matter what you're doing. Um, and we had success, you know, three different ways. I'd say one was that spot in stock where we're, you were seeing them and then we're going in on them and uh, moving around. They can be pretty active. So you have to, when you're spotting and stalking, they're not like mule deer. They usually won't bed down for four or five hours in a row or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you do have to kind of know where they're going or what they're doing. And if they are bedded, you need to move pretty quick. So I'd say like, oh, wow. within 30 minutes. Um, but that's a really cool way. And I won't dive too deep into that because a lot of guys are familiar with that playbook. Um, the other way you can do things uh, kind of still hunting. And this is one I pulled from blacktail hunting in California, which is and still hunting is where you move very small amounts and then you're still for a while. It takes a lot of patience. So one area we'd hunt was incredibly thick and there's just no way you could hunt it any other way than just surprising something. And so we'd, we'd walk 50 yards, get to a clearing, kind of stop, right? And then mm-hmm. do the same thing, walk another 50 yards, stop. And you'd kind of have these ambush points coming around corners or into meadows or into areas you've seen a ton of sign. And it's amazing. You'd stop and you'd sit there, nothing for a minute or two. And all of a sudden you'd look over and you'd see like a hoof underneath the bush to the right you know, and here they are, third one's coming through. So that's, that's a really productive way to do it. If you have the patience and the skill to go that slow, right. Mm -hmm. That's a really, and then I'd say the third one is kind of ambush, right? It's getting to the spots like the elk, the pinch points, the areas you see them going, uh, they're there all the time, right? They don't have anywhere else to go. So you'll see a lot of sign on the Mm -hmm. routes they're coming in. So it's pretty easy to go find the trails, and the sign, you know, the, the scat or whatever, the the prints like elk. And you can say, okay, this is a highly, highly trafficked area. Um, and that's, that's a, was really productive for us to kind of get in front of them. So those are the general three areas and you can dive deeper on each one, but uh, you know, any of those three tactics worked pretty well. And I'm sure guys that have been hunting them, you know, in Hawaii for years and years and years know far better than I do, but uh, those are kind of the three that worked for us. Yeah. So, and then on a macro level, you mentioned wind is really good. Is there a specific season of the year? Like, do they have like a mating season where they're a little bit dumber? Yeah, they do have a rut, right? They do have the, um, that peak rut. And I, I don't know why I knew exactly when that was when I went, I can't remember it right now. If I, if I'm correct, I think it's in, uh, May, June, April through June, somewhere in there. I mean, you have to just do the research. That one's pretty easy for guys to find. Uh, but that's definitely a peak time and they make a pretty incredible noise. You hear them, um, the bellowing kind of noise. Uh, so it's, you, you'll, you'll hear them and they're there. I don't, um, in particular, I don't really know the tactics around hunting the rut. I don't know if guys that call them or that sort of thing. And honestly, I think for most guys are probably going to be planning around their vacation time more than like the rut itself. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd say just those tactics are going to work all the time. And if you do hear them or see them running, then Hey, that's an extra bonus for you. Yeah. I, I like how you hesitated for a second. Like, should I make that sound? Oh, I'm not going to try. No, no. That one out. <laughs> I almost asked you, I was like, what? So what do they sound like? Yeah. Back you know, yeah. whatever. <laughs> I mean, after having a kid, I'm pretty good at weird sounds. <laughs> Trust me. That. But, uh, but that's, I mean, that brings up one, one thing while I'm remembering it is that if you were to go with the rifle and it's much harder, it's much, much easier to get bow hunting access in Hawaii. Cause it's low. If you bring a rifle to the, the islands, you got to get a police permit. Um, you gotta be careful where you're hunting because bullets go a long way. Right. There's all these hurdles there, but you know, obviously the hardest thing about these axis deer is getting close and they're darn twitchy, but they can't unru- outrun bullets. Right. Yeah. <laughs> they can outrun arrows. They can't outrun bullets. So if you are really in it for the meat and you really care about doing that, I know a lot of guys that go there, they pay the extra cash for a day where they can use a rifle and they'll hunt with bows for the first four or five days. And they'll just cancel that day if they get a few. Oh, uh, interesting. But generally, if they want to go home with meat, they can bring the rifle and, and pick up a, an animal or two, especially if you just care about you know meat, not uh, horns or that sort of thing. Right. And then uh, on the... Uh, the stocking aspect, but how is it similar or different to stocking elk? Yeah, it's, um, I'd say it's really similar. I think with most animals, it's more similarities and differences, right? It's just the general skill set of stocking is really important. Uh, the things I will say is that they, the stuff you're in, you know, the lava rock, the brush, there's a lot of noise. Um, even though some of it's green, you can, you can 
definitely make noise. So thinking about how you weave through areas is pretty critical. Um, I'd say two, they're a lot more alert than an elk. You know, elk are fairly alert and they're, they're twitchy, but they're not, um, I think elk are big enough. They're not generally thinking someone's going to jump on them every second of the day mm-hmm. versus the tall. I mean, these things are, like I said, the size of a large German shepherd, right? They're used to everything eating them. Um, and so they, if you move at all in visible areas, they got you. They, they wow. see you. So I think more so than elk, you know, elk, it's more about timing. Like if it turns its head or it's looking at something else, I'll run at it. Right. Yeah. Um, I would never do that with an axis steer. <laughs> they'd, they'd pick you up in a heartbeat. So it's more about staying out of sight, which you can do there. You know, elk country, it's pretty open on the ground. You can't do that as much sometimes, mm-hmm. but, but there you can kind of pick a path to be behind you know, bushes or behind trees or stuff like that. So, so I'd say that's a big one. Um, stalking wise too, you really, with the shot itself, you need to think about uh, like where you're going to ambush them because you need to be close, right? Or you need to be downwind of them. One of the, the one that I did kill that we didn't recover. Um, and that was, that was actually an example I've used before. We were coming back to the car, actually. And this one was 100 yards from the car in a, a little field right there. But it was almost pitch black, like very close to evening. Um, and just enough light to shoot, uh, legal light. And we got got there and I looked up in the field and I could see one feeding and it was perfect because it was like waist high grass and coming dead downwind and probably 20 mile per hour winds really intense so I actually in that one was kind of running up towards him a bit because I knew I he couldn't hear me and it was kind of crazy and I got to within 20 30 yards of him I think it was 30 35 something like that um shots it's I heard the punk you know like it go through the the cavity heard the the pop I mm-hmm. uh, went right through him he bounded up ran around and bedded down. And unfortunately that was before Margaret really knew how the game worked. I went up, you know, I knew he'd gone at least 50 yards. So I went up to where the arrow was to make sure I hit him. Yep. There's blood on it. Okay. Let's wait. Uh, but while I was doing that, she ran to right where he was and bumped him. And that's what made it oh. away. Um, so I think that stalking is going to be similar. You'll see some of the same techniques, but you just have to be so careful with the visuals with them or, or sound. If there's no wind they're they're very twitchy. Yeah, so it kind of reminds me of mule deer, at least like when you mentioned that really high plateau with the kind of rolling hills where when we were stalking in on the mule deer, we basically were stalking in blind. Like we knew they were they went just below that that one hill mm-hmm. and then we would just kind of curve our way to that point. But the whole time we're going there, we can't see it. Yeah. So like you said, knowing where they're going. Now, what about when you get to the point where you're like maybe within a hundred yards and you're like, okay, it's right there. How do you close that last 40, 50, 60 yards? I would, like, yeah. I mean, see them. They, you're they stalking see you. him. Oh, sorry. I totally cut you off there. Um, oh, no, it's okay. Yeah. Just that last part where maybe they can see you and you're just got to close the distance. Yeah. And so I would, in that situation, I'm not going to move until he can't see me or until he's gone behind a bush or there's something they're going around. And I would try to always stalk on them in a location where, you know, there's, there's a bunch of trees and they're moving towards the trees. Right. And then they go behind them and I can go kind of get on the other side of the trees, right. Something like that. Um, because if there's any sort of open terrain, there's not going to work. Um, so you have to get something between you and them is what I'd say. Oh, gotcha. So when I'm thinking about stalking one, it's like a chessboard, right? It's like, where's I can get to that thing. I can get to that thing and get to that thing. They're moving that way. They're probably going to go behind that Whoa. sort of thing. And so that's kind of the, the bit, and there's a lot of them, a lot of times I'd be like an elk would be within a hundred, 200 yards of it for a long time, just kind of looking and waiting. That's part of the fun, right? It's the, the cat and mouse game um, and just waiting for the right time and opportunity. Cause it's hard with them. Cause there's so many that you're tempted to just go fast. Cause you're like, well, I blow this opportunity. I go find some more, but you actually have to play it very, very tight. Cause there's not, there's very few situations where you'd luck out by doing something stupid. You know, gotcha. Yeah. And then the actual deer itself, in terms of like hearing their sight, uh, smell, mm-hmm. where, where are they at on the scale compared to other yeah, uh, the charts? Yeah. <laughs> oh, really? They're, yeah, all, they're very good at seeing stuff. They're, you know, they, like a lot of the deer, they're not like razor sharp vision, but they're unbelievable smell. They're really good with sound, uh, but they're by far the, the twitchiest animal I've ever heard of from anyone hunting <laughs> ever. I mean, all the Brutal. guys I know that have hunted one them or say they make whitetail look like a slow animal um they're very very twitchy so that's that's just kind of the thing 
Yeah. I mean, gear, you know, gear is pretty different too, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you're probably going there anyway, but now that I'm thinking about it, it's, you know, so we talked about the bow, you want to get that quiet, you know, guys that don't have a quiet bow and aren't going to buy one myself included. Uh, there's a few things you can do, right? You can put some, uh, what are they called? Like little beaver balls. You, know, you can use the, Oh yeah. Yeah. Like dampeners. Can, dampers. Yeah. As you tie them into the string, that'll kill a few feet per second, but that trade-off would be well worth it. Um, so what you'll do is you, oh, why am I, cattails. Mm-hmm. Right? You just take the little rubber guys, tie them into your string, cut them, and they make a giant poof of rubber. Yeah. That's probably the most effective thing you can do to quiet your bow. Um, I would replace uh, replace your string stop if it's not a good one, not one that's super damping. You can buy limb saver vibration killers. You put in the limbs, you put an extra set or two of those in there, shoot a heavy arrow. We've talked about that. Um, the heavy arrow will really knock down the the sound so you do all those things you can really quiet down your bow so that's that's one thing i do before i went every year i'd retune and do all that stuff um, it's not a big tune difference just you know do all that and then make sure everything's flying good but i'm the world's you know one of the biggest proponents of fixed blade broadheads for elk for a lot of reasons we talked about but i think for these guys this is probably the the perfect example of a uh of a mechanical working well Hmm. And but I would say I shot fixed blades. Do not shoot a fixed blade with a vent in it. Whoa, really? They can oh, hear, loud. They oh. can hear the broadhead hissing and they dodge the broadhead. It is fascinating. Wow. That's the number one thing they hear is the broadhead coming at them with that s- noise. Whoa! And, and I I didn't believe it when I showed up, but one of the guys there who's a butcher on the island who described this to me. He's like, no, they can literally see your arrow and dodge it if they can hear that noise but i totally believe it now they literally can uh they can literally hear you um if you do a lot of guys have vented broadheads and they're like oh what the heck i don't want to buy new ones or change it just take a little bit of packing tape you Mm -hmm. know cut a triangle out put it over the vent whoa interesting that's what i did to save you know save that noise we're there because we're there and all we had was vented ones and after a day or two of that i'm like this is not working yeah, uh, so we you put a little packing tape over it because it doesn't matter once it goes through the animal, um, right? Uh, but mechanicals, I would honestly, I would probably use a mechanical next time because accuracy—they're so small, they're tiny, they're a very difficult target. Um, I would, I would rather take an eighty-yard shot in elk than one, a sixty-yard shot at one there. Wow. Uh, and I took a sixty-yard and actually hit one um, and got it, but there—that was you know after in hindsight, I'm like, wow, that is a very—you're shooting at a four inch square area right dang so that's their vitals yeah they're very small (laughs) Uh, wow so shooting you know mechanical would not be a bad thing especially if you're not great at tuning just to have that extra little edge of accuracy and they'll be quiet Mm -hmm. now not all mechanicals are quiet i've shot rage broadheads that are vented or have like a just the way they're laid out they don't really fly clean through the air so you'll hear that hiss you know i'd be shooting something like the sever that's completely enclosed Mm -hmm. um so I'd, you know, I'd test that, listen to it uh, from equipment style. We talked about the boots, you know, something that's stiff enough for a little support, but not too stiff. Um, Mario and I are fortunate enough to have kind of general backpacking boots that we don't really use for elk hunting. Yeah. Your Solomons, for example, are really great. They're kind of, you know, general backpacking boots. They're not going to be super, super stiff like the mountaineering level ones we've got, but they're... Mm somewhere in the middle that's a great spot so if you've got a general pair of hiking boots that's a good fit yeah i mean that's that's really kind of what it's binos tripod spotting scope yeah yes to uh yes to tripod um spotting scope sure you know it's one of those areas that you're it's not that far and it's not that heavy i would uh i would keep the spotting scope in the car yeah we'd we'd go from hill to hill or go to an area glass or ravine so if you're going to use one we don't i just don't like spotting scopes in general Mm-hmm. Um, but I would always use the tripod and the binos, right? My my standard 8x guys with the bino or tripod setup. Gotcha. Any any other gear differences? Uh, are there like like stickers where you should wear gaiters or you know stuff like anything small like that? Mm, not really. I mean, gaiters aren't the end of the world because there is some really thick, nasty stuff. But for me, I've never really had a problem with stuff getting into boots. If you're wearing a good fitted pair of pants that kind of fit over the tops of your boots well. Um, and I just would say that your basic, your layer for the hot part of September is going to work well, right? Just, I have the long sleeve shirt cause I don't want to get burned in the sun. And also, you know, I'm pretty pasty whites. So they're going to see that. <laughs> <laughs> so that, and then the, 
you know, the Apex pants Sitka has are one of the most breathable ones I've ever used. So I used those. They were great. I mean, just just basically one layer that's ultra, ultra vented uh, would be the, the way to go. And, it, and actually, you do kind of want a, a jacket, right? a light jacket, because the wind will pick up at night and mm-hmm. uh, it'll get a little colder. It's definitely not yeah. cold, but, you know, just like a single puffy or a single something to take the edge off. Yeah, like a mid-layer or something. Yeah. So really not, you know, a lot of the same gear you're using, which is one of the cool bits about it. Uh, but definitely, I'd say the broadheads, you know, solid bladed fixed blades or a really quiet mechanical and then a quiet bow are really the the piece that I would, I would care about. Yeah. Does anybody camp out there like backpack style hunt these or, or is it pretty much all from the car morning hunts and evening hunts? Yeah, there's not. Um, you could. You definitely could. Um, in some places, I think a lot of islands don't allow camping because there's a lot of people that would just do that, you know, like bum mm-hmm. around the islands. Right. Um, so it's kind of hard to get away with that sort of stuff. But there's, then again, if you went to some of these islands and you got back away from people, like no one would know you're there. There's no way yeah. they'd ever know you're there. Um, so you could easily do that if you wanted um, to do a little DIY style, especially mm-hmm. if you're doing something like pigs or goats and, you know, Kauai or some of the, the other places that have those. Oh, said okay. the name, but that one's public. <laughs> I mean, that's a huge amount of area that's public. That's well-known knowledge. So then not okay. giving away anything there. Um, cool. But some of the areas that have more air, like tons of public land with things on them that, uh, yeah, you could do that. Okay. And then how about cost? Yeah. So cost, and actually, you know what I should do before we do talk cost? I should talk technique because there's one or two other things, um, like maybe taking the shot. Oh, okay. Deer. Um, you really want to shoot and then we can talk, talk cost. And I think that's all the knowledge I've learned. Uh, you really want to shoot low and forward. Because mm-hmm. they're gonna almost always at least duck or you know, drop and move forward a bit. So they uh, the the guys I really trust and know that have been hunting them 20, 30 years out there too. They say the vitals on the axis deer are a little forward and up um, from a normal deer. They're not right behind that crease like you normally would see. Yeah, and so they actually the heart and lungs when they've they butchered them, they say it's always a little bit forward. So yet another reason to shoot a nice heavy arrow. Mm-hmm. a good broadhead because you can they're small enough that i would actually be fine aiming on a shoulder blade or you know, right at it or yeah in front of it um because if it does you know if it doesn't move which is pretty low odds it'll punch right through there if you got a good setup good strong setup that you use for elk for example yeah um, but you do want to aim kind of front or on that shoulder blade on the low third right i normally aim mid body on an elk um mid or higher i kind of like that area but for these i'm always aiming on the bottom third and i'm aiming on the shoulder blade or slightly ahead of it because when when that let go lets go no matter how unaware they are they almost always drop a little bit and move forward a tiny bit yeah because they they it was crazy in uh when we hunted mule deer they told us the same thing they like to aim low like right behind the shoulder crease for mule deer because they tend to drop and me and uh my my buddy dylan who were out there the new hunters on that hunt uh we were like i don't know i think like that's like aiming exactly where you want to hit it i think we should aim mid-body because it has the greatest like uh uh tolerance for like a mistake and Mm -hmm. um we yeah. he decided to shoot at the mid body, but when we watched the footage on camera, you can we saw it slow motion, like the arrow Duck going it. straight at it. That thing just ducks. It they like brace themselves before sprinting. It's almost like mm-hmm. loading up before exactly like loading the spring. Yeah, yeah, and they, <laughs> it completely ducked. You can see the shadow of the arrow go right, right over, over its back. It. it was fascinating, and and that was a twitchy animal, but I bet it's not nearly as twitchy as these guys sound no and it's i mean it's like uh leading a bird with a shotgun it's really hard to get your mind around it the first few times and then you notice so you know just trust me on that just put your arrow literally on the bottom you know as far over into the right if it's facing to the right uh as you can because like Mm -hmm. and still be on flesh you know like that's that's where you want to shoot um and even if it does not move which i don't i haven't seen one do that yet (laughs) uh, that'll be in a good spot so yeah, that's that's a big one for technique as far as shots and that sort of thing. Um, and then the other thing I'd say is tracking can be really stinking hard. It's red dirt, it's red ground with red blood and a red animal, right? Yeah. Um, so watch them, watch them, watch them, watch them. That's the only thing I can say is the the times we track them, the, by far the easiest way to do it is just figure out uh, you know where they went visually. You're not going to find great sign unless it's really open. Wow. Right. 
there's so many tracks through those, those areas. There's so many animals that tracking them's almost a fool's errand too. Dang. Yeah. So it's, it can be hard to, to recover or find them. But, um, you know, one of the mistakes I really regret is the butcher had dogs just like labs and we didn't put two and two together. But that night when we had to leave, it's cause we couldn't find it. I should have just driven over there and got the dogs. Oh, um, just let them loose. Cause they would have found it. It was only 30 yards from where we'd been looking. Um, oh, no way. So I'd say that, you know, if you, if you have a butcher or somebody on the Island, you know, just go grab their dog. And if you can't find the animal, um, cause it's legal and great way to find them. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah. And then, uh, yeah. And you ask cost, maybe we do logistics too. Yeah. But you know, the, a lot of guys, part of the reason they don't want to do this is they think, Hey, it's so hard to hunt. I can't, what about the meat? What's, what's the deal there? Um, well, first for guys that, you know, access to you are in Texas and they're well-known there are from guys that have hunted both. I've heard that access deer in Hawaii tastes far better because they're just eating green, like natural green, really lush island grass, right? Mm-hmm. Um, versus stuff in Texas, they taste more like a whitetail because that's kind of, they're eating the same sort of forage. Um, yeah, they're, they're feeding them like yeah, corn or something. They're yeah. famous, famous, famous for being the best tasting deer on the planet. Um, better than elk? Least. Yes, better than elk. <laughs> it's almost like a hybrid between deer meat and pork. Uh, it's really interesting. It's so tasty. They uh, actually serve Axis deer at a lot of really fancy restaurants in the islands uh, as part of like a partnership to try to get rid of them as an invasive species. And people, you could you would never know. I mean, it's phenomenal. It's unbelievable game meat. So that's part of the reason I love them. They are literally like an elk. They're a trophy of game meat. They're phenomenally tasty. They're fantastic. We really regret not shooting more of them. <laughs> We're doing the gun strategy because we would love to have them year round. Mm-hmm. Um, so definitely get excited about that. It's not hard to get them home. Um, it's pretty easy to do it, but I would like all the times I would have your butcher picked out or be ready to do it yourself. The way guys do this, uh, is you get fish boxes, like you get mm-hmm. in Alaska or something and you fill up 50 pounds of meat or, you know, 48 or whatever it is. So you just get under the limits, um, and leave room for like a pound or two of dry ice. And so you, you'll get that animal. If you butcher yourself or have a butcher, if you butcher yourself, find someone who will freeze it, a commercial meat packer or something, uh, you get it hard frozen. And then you just chuck a pound or two of dry ice on it, um, which only lasts about a half a day or a day, but that's all you need to fly home Mm -hmm. Uh, because airline uh, bellies guys don't realize this, but at altitude, they're freezing. They're really cold. Yeah. Uh, So you just do that and it's really easy to get stuff home. Uh, Interesting. Do that. It's, I mean, you pay for an extra bag one way, but most of the time, an extra bag, depending on who you take, it's only 50 bucks or something like that. So it's really not that big of a deal. And you plan ahead, you fly Southwest or Alaska, somebody who's really friendly with extra bags, uh, when you're going there and that's a, that's a great way to do it. And with the fish box, do you have to just like duct tape it a few, like go around it a few times to keep it shut or? Yeah, they actually don't with, uh, with airlines have specific regulations for dry ice. Do look up what your airline says. Um, I don't want to like tell someone something and get angry at me, but generally speaking, they don't want an enclosed container for dry ice because obviously it could explode because it's venting right. all that air pressure. Um, so they actually like it if there's a little bit of holes or whatever in it. Um, mm-hmm. So you just kind of yeah tape it up loosely and they'll probably want you to pull it off at the airport to see the dry ice and how it's all done. Uh, I see. So don't okay. do something too fancy. You wouldn't mind cutting and retaping. Right. Keep that tape on you. Um, at the airport and declare it, you know, be very open with what you're doing, what you got. Um, yeah. And it's, yeah, it's really pretty harmless. It's easy. It always pops out the other side. We've done it with fish too. It's nice if you go fishing and take home some tuna or some wahoo, just throw it in the same thing. Um, and a, a butchered out, uh, dough would probably be 20, 30 pounds, a male 30, 40 pounds, maybe if you're lucky. Wow. They're tiny. Um, it's a big one. So they're not big. So you can you know, shoot three or four a person and take them home. Wait, how many can you shoot? It depends on where you are and what you're doing. If you've got a state tag, you know, you obviously get one, but if you, uh, if you, uh, are at private land, some of them allow you to shoot as many as you want <laughs> because they don't really care about, uh, a, they know archers aren't going to get that many, <laughs> uh, B, they just don't, it's an invasive species. They want to get rid of them. Right. Wow. Too many of them. So yeah, it's, it's pretty cool, but that's, I mean, that's kind of all the logistics and learnings. It took a long time to figure a lot of that out. So I'm giving guys a head start, although I don't want to, you know, you still got to earn it if you want to figure out where and how exactly, but 
I think that's enough total to get cost? guys over the, the, the curve. Um, cost is a hard one to talk about because it really depends on the island and what you're doing. You know, if you were, I'll give you a spectrum. If you were going and you're guided and you're like, hey, I'm going to go have a guy take me to a premier place. I, I, you know, nothing's guaranteed, but I want super high odds. I'm going to get one with a bow. He's going to set me up in a perfect stand where they walk by each day. You know, all that stuff. You're looking at like a thousand dollars a day for a guide, right? Something expensive, okay. right? Mm-hmm. Very expensive. And a lot of the guides, when you Google this, you'll find that they're just super expensive and they cater to people with more money than time. Um, the other end of the spectrum is the DIY stuff. Um, the permit, the Hawaii hunting permit you need to get is like a hundred bucks. The private land I was on was like 150 bucks for a year for archers. Cause it's slow odds. Um, so it was only like $250 of permits, oh, not too much. Yeah. The expensive stuff in Hawaii, like we talked about, it's the lodging and it's the transportation, especially some of the islands they're on are very remotely populated. There's not really no car rental agencies or formal ones. So it can be like a hundred dollars a day to get a car. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of these places. And then, uh, staying is even harder because some of them don't have the supply of houses, right? There's more popular tourist islands that do have stuff, but even there, it's going to be $200 a night. Mm-hmm. So that's probably what gives Hawaii the bum rap is everyday Joe can't really show up and spend, you know, on a week long vacation with family, spend two grand, three grand. Uh, that's a lot of money. But if guys are die hard and they do want to go do this, you know, we've seen a lot of guys go through these areas we've been where they bring three or four guys because you can split those costs so easily. Oh, There's yeah, plenty like the of terrain, plenty of area, tons of animals for three, four guys to hunt together. Um, and all the things that you need to get that are expensive, the house, the car, uh, all that stuff is uh, is really things you can split, right? Airplane right. flights, 300 to 500 if you're timing it because you're kind of going in the off season, right? I would yeah. recommend that for guys... You know, if you go over the winter, go over Christmas, everybody wants to go. It's expensive. You go over the summer, everybody wants to go. But if you go kind of in the the spring, you know, or some of the fall, even if you don't want to hunt big game out here, times when people are generally not going, kids are in school or something like that, you can you can get good deals. Interesting. Yeah. Oh man, I'm so. Oh. It it almost feels like for me it it would almost feel like going in inter- i've never been to hawaii so it feels like almost like going internationally even though it's part of the u.s but it's like it feels like traveling outside the u.s to go oh yeah it's a, the like perfect that. combo cool. yeah yeah it's like an international trip that's in yeah the borders right <laughs> um another good tip for you we've done this lives you can tape bow cases together if you travel with other guys uh you know the weird thing about bow cases is they're long and you know fairly wide but they're not Sorry, they're long, but it's three dimensions. I'm trying to think of it. Whatever. You know what they're talking about. They're flat and long, right? Right. But they're not wide. And so you can actually tape usually two or three bow cases together and make it quote unquote one bag. Uh, <laughs> so we've funny. done that a few times. Uh, <laughs> nice. We have, we'd use Plano. Again, I'm just trying to remove barriers for guys here. You know, you don't need an SKB or a Pelican case. It's two or 300 bucks. Um, those are phenomenal. Josh got my old one. They're really nice. <laughs> mm-hmm. But we actually use... Um, Plano bow cases that are $70. They're incredible. They've got these pillars that make them crush proof. We just tape over the latches. So they don't bust those off. We've flown with them a few times. They're totally fine. They're great. Nice. So you just, uh, you don't need super expensive stuff to go do this. I think every time I talk about all these crazy adventures and other things, everyone's like, oh, it's so expensive. It's nuts. You must be rich. It's like, no, man, if you, if you just try hard enough and put enough effort into it, you can make it pretty affordable. And that's cool. Yeah. And now I, now I got some Googling left to do. Um, yeah. Maybe last question. I might give you the download, Josh, if you're, you know, <laughs> you're really friendly. Maybe I'll be nice to you and tell you some stuff <laughs> offline here. Oh, sweet. How about for the rest of those folks, if for starting research, what would your first like five Google searches be? Yeah, I would probably just look, uh, I would you know, Google access deer in the place you want to do it. And I'd figure out where, you know, we didn't even talk about pigs, goats, things that um, I haven't hunted in Hawaii because I've hunted in other places. And if I'm going there, I really want to do the axis because of the taste. But those are really cool. Those are probably hunted the most of anything on Hawaii. You can do those in almost every island, even in the most touristy locations. There's a lot of pigs and goats. Uh, it's really oh. cool. But figure out what species you're interested in, figure out which islands they're on, um, try to figure out what the public land opportunities are for them, the DNR. Uh, Division of Natural Resources in Hawaii has a lot of information on hunts, 
Um, and then you can start to Google uh, things on, you know, forums are a really good place. Cause a lot of guys have post about it and what they did and how they got there. Um, yeah. you know, who's the butcher in the area? What's the thing? Um, yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to get too specific because I feel like that's, again, we don't want to pile a few thousand guys onto one thing. Just again, the people that want to work for it can go get it. Um, but yeah, just Google around, look on forums, look on public sources and you'll find it. We're well, not going to find it is with the guides or the sites that have, you hunt access to your information because they're just trying to sell you a guided hunt. Right, right, right. So just kind of avoid those. You got to piece it together. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Oh, I want to go there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a great opportunity. You know, you could, uh, and like m- most animals, the, by far the best time to hunt the access deer, even though they're around all day and you can't easily get them, then is the morning and the evening when they're moving. Uh, so it's a great one. So you can go with a family. It's not something you're thinking about yet, but, uh, fortunately, right. But, uh, if you do go with the family, it's pretty easy to go somewhere. You could stay on one of these islands, get up at five, go do your thing for two or three hours, come back to be with the family at eight. You know, maybe, maybe your wife's nice enough to you to let you sneak out at, you know, six for sunset. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you could, you know, you could do that too. It'd be a really cool way to combine the two. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like that'd be a more cost-effective way of doing it. Cause you already had the, the, the trip planned out for the family and just mm-hmm. tack on like a few evenings or a, a full day and one evening or something like that for hunting. Yeah. seems pretty awesome. I know plenty of people that go to Hawaii, you know, you're already, so it's, uh, it's not to be missed. You're in a one heck of a hunting destination. Dang, that is sweet. Yeah. Anything else that we missed? I mean, I think that's it. There's probably a million little things that I'll think of later, but uh, more just to get guys interested, keep this the fire alive in the off season here. Um, you know, I think as vaccine comes out, um, some guys have had coronavirus. Some guys just have different thresholds they're comfortable with. You know, it's it's possible, right? It's time. This is one that we can do. I think New Zealand. And we'll continue the series and talk about a few other cool ones. Um, New Zealand might be hard to do this year, but Hawaii is very much on the radar depending on your level of comfort. Uh, yeah so it's you know go get it have fun tell me how it went um it's yeah it's just no downside to that one so much fun and for those listening thank you so much for listening uh if you like the off-season opportunity series uh drop us an email or drop us a comment uh we could do more of them for sure and uh think of other things to do in the off-season to keep that fire alive but uh, other than that, leave us a review if you like us. <laughs> we'll keep it going. Yeah, appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. We'll be back next week with some more interviews and some more off-season opportunities.